Hello everyone, it's June 22nd, 2021. So we've spent a few weeks on Venus with NASA and ESA. Now it's time to visit Mars with Rocket Lab aboard a Photon bus. Remember, they're not just in the launch business, they want to explore, and we're gonna talk about how they plan to do just that on the red planet and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 314 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I don't know if you guys saw this, um, but Bill Nelson um, was at a Senate appropriations meeting. I mean, he was testifying. And I don't I don't know it, like if testifying is just sort of a generic word. Like, I don't think it means that he was like uh testifying in regards to like an like an investigation i think i think he was just you know showing up and and acting like a, a an expert um and helping uh helping guide the committee but anyway um he uh basically said hey yeah um we do need more money for hls right last week we talked about hls being included in a bill uh from the senate that still has yet to uh pass the house um but the bill said that uh, they were going to authorize a certain amount of money to NASA to um, select a second HLS contractor. And so Nelson, I think, is like, yes, absolutely. We didn't like obviously this happened before Nelson was confirmed. But like, yeah, I think he's yeah. like, yeah, w- we really do need uh m- to select more than one contractor. So anyway, he, he's in front of the appropriations committee. Um, and he said, yeah, we, this is something that we need. You get, you guys need to appropriate us the funds. And, uh, in doing so, he, he talked about how much the Dynetics bid was. And this is what's kind of interesting because I hadn't seen uh, a number for this yet. And he said it was between eight and a half and $9 billion, which like for reference, uh, Blue Origin bid 5.99 billion and SpaceX bid 2.9 billion. So like, you know, roughly 3 billion up to a potential, you know, somewhere between eight and a half and nine billion, like three to nine billion dollars is a huge difference. It is kind of shocking to me how big that spread was. I didn't think, I mean, I knew there was going to be a spread, but I didn't think it was going to be that big. It's really kind of crazy. It's even more crazy when you consider what SpaceX is proposing compared to Dynetics. But also this is sort of like the first Xboxes, right? Like where uh, Microsoft (laughs) uh, sold the first Xboxes at a loss for a long, long, long time. Uh, and, and I kind of feel like SpaceX is happy to, uh, to sell this thing at, I don't know if it's going to be a loss, but, um, you know, I think they'd be happy to sell it at a loss just to help get it moving. One way to put it in pers- one way I, I just calculated real quick to put in perspective is of all the money bid, SpaceX, uh, bid about 16, 17% of it. <laughs> <laughs> if I, if I, I mean, if I did that math right, that's how much of the, of the three, right? And then, um. Uh, Blue Origin bid about, you know, 33, uh, one third of it. And Dynetics, I mean, bid half of it, right? They bid nine out of, you know, the total, uh, it looked like 18 billion in all was bid. That's incredible. But yeah, I guess we can only assume that SpaceX is just playing the long game here, right? They, you know, mm-hmm. And they're just taking the loss because when you look at their proposal, it seems like there's just no way that that's possible. Although they do operate very lean and they're fast and they're innovative, and they're, but they're also kind of like not cheap. But you know what I mean? Like they'll do the rough and dirty stuff to get things done as opposed well, to doing it. And on, on top of that, they're going to build this one way or the other. So if they can pick up a mm-hmm. little bit of extra money for a mission now, if you're going to build it anyway. 
it's it's nice to get paid for a mission, you know? Yeah, which is why I have at least some sympathy to the idea of, like, the money. I realized the money, they were limited by the amount of money that they could give. But, I mean, SpaceX could technically just be like, you know, all right, we bid zero dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah. Does that make that particular metric infinitely, you know, good, you know, uh, for them, you know, when it gets to rating their, you know, their bid? Because... You know, easily absorb that three billion, even just as a company, let alone like you know Musk's personal wealth. You know, I I have a feeling that you that like there's some rule somewhere that says that you can't bid zero dollars, but you could bid one dollar. <laughs> So past couple of weeks we've been talking about Venus, but now let's uh, move over to Mars. So we're just all uh, all over the solar system. So this one is about Mars and Rocket Lab. Uh, where was Rocket Lab featured in the last couple of weeks? Because we know that they have some Venus missions planned, uh, but now it looks like they might be doing some stuff with Mars as well. So they're a very interplanetary launch company. You know what I mean? Like, uh, mm. or they're more than just a launch company, which I guess is uh, the key thing that Peter Beck wants us all to understand. So the mission is, uh, yeah, Escapade, and so it's a single mission, but it's two spacecraft, and so we're gonna get to see uh, Photon, right? You you alluded to Venus's or Rocket Lab's idea for a v- Venusian mission, and that would be on a Photon spacecraft, right? This is their what a converted uh, kick stage that they essentially you know want to make into mm-hmm. a, an independent sort of you know spacecraft, and so. So they're going to be the the uh, the photon bus will be uh, kind of appended to this um, escapade mission that's been in development for a while now, and uh, basically be a dual mission to Mars to explore its uh, you know magnetic field and uh, a lot of other you know uh, and kind of processes happening in the kind of upper atmosphere of Mars. And so um, escapade is uh, it's an acronym. It stands for uh, escape and plasma acceleration and dynamics explorers. And so uh, explorers is plural because there are two of them. And uh, yeah, it was originally slated to launch with Psyche on a Falcon 9 as part of a rideshare, um, or r- rather as ridesharing with Psyche, as you can imagine, is the primary payload on that Falcon 9. Um, but then uh, Psyche got switched to a, a Falcon Heavy, um, basically to be able to heave it out there um, more effectively, if I remember correctly. That ended up, though, giving it a new uh, uh, characteristic energy as well as position in the sky that didn't work so well with a Mars rendezvous, right? Remember, Psyche is going to a uh, uh, an asteroid belt object, Psyche, and so um, escapade catching a ride would no longer be very effective. And so, uh, Ben, you want to talk a little bit about this, uh, this uh, line element that happens in uh, the... <sighs> the previous interview uh, before my days yeah. where uh, you can learn a lot yeah. more about this. Well, I mean, so, so this is kind of off topic, but I, I was reading, I think it was the space.com article and they talked about um, the switch from uh, Falcon nine to a Falcon heavy. And I was like, Oh yeah. The, the way that you describe uh, escape velocity for a vehicle, there's, there's this like, it's almost like a three line element, right? Or, uh, Isn't it two? Oh, it is two line. You're right. But the, the TLE, it is just like a description of your orbit around a body, usually the Earth. Um, and then there's this this other thing that's used to describe the the direction and velocity you're doing when you escape uh, Earth's uh, um, sphere of influence uh, effectively. And, and I I couldn't remember. I was like, I I know this is a thing. I know it starts with C three, which is a characteristic energy. And most people talk about C three. Um, because it really is the major uh, determinator of where you can go uh, in the solar system. 
but I was like, is C3? Like I, I could hear the cadence in my head and I couldn't remember what the, <laughs> what the other elements were. Uh, and I, yeah, I ended up going back to, um, one of our old, uh, interviews, uh, with Mark Wallace. It was a, it was a great interview talking about, uh, how you, you know, basically, uh, book flights, uh, to other planets. Um, and I had to go back into our show notes and I found it. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's uh C3 DLA <laughs> Uh that was the cadence that I had in my head. It's uh DLA is uh declination, RLA is right ascension. So uh declination and right ascension of the departure uh asymptotic vector. Um so you when you're escaping uh the earth, you're in a, a hyperbola. Only one parabola, many hyperbolas, or an infinite number of hyperbolas. And so it's usually a, a hyperbolic trajectory. And so since it's a hyperbola and not a straight line, you can't, it's better to describe the asymptote that you're approaching, uh, on that hyperbolic trajectory. And so you, you describe the declination, the right ascension and the characteristic energy, which is basically X, Y, and Z. Um, but, if, if there's anybody out there who heard, oh yeah, it's a, it's a different trajectory out of the, out of the, what the heck is that? How do you describe it? C3 DLA RLA. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry for the, sorry for the ramble. Go, go on, Dennis. No, I love that. Cause I, I, I like, I learned, yeah, that that's a new, uh, I guess triplet that, that pops up. Oh in, yeah. And, and so you said that you had a good point that in astronomy, instead of doing declination right ascension, which is what you use for rocket launches, you usually do right ascension declination. Right. And and we don't use those uh, initials either. We call them RA yeah, and right. DEC. Well, <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And, and uh, DLA RLA is talking about the, the asymptotic vector, the LA. I forget what it stands for exactly. I can, let me look it up. Because that makes sense. Yeah. So, right. Because declination and right ascension are the latitude and longitude on the sky. And during your hyperbolic orbit, it's going to change over time. But what it asymptotes to is a fixed point in the sky. So with a fixed sky latitude or declination and a fixed sky longitude or right ascension. And so that makes sense that it would be, uh, they'd use a different acronym for that. Since after all, um, declination and right ascension are changing throughout the orbit. I'm pretty sure it's, it's launch asymptote. Now that, now launch that asymptote. I think about it. That makes sense. But yeah. Hey, right, so escapade, what's it doing? Well, <laughs> uh, as I alluded to, right, the, the goals is to really study, uh, uh, Mars's, uh, magnetic field. Um, something that's, uh, interesting about Mars, it's very unique, right? Uh, you know, as, as the solar wind plows into it, right, you're just going to be a magneto tail kind of stretching away. The Maven spacecraft, which has been in orbit around Mars for a while now, NASA's spacecraft, has, uh, basically learned that the, the magnetic field, um, the, the tail in particular is not like a, uh, the Earth's magneto tail, where it comes principally from the Earth's intrinsic magnetic field, uh, nor is it like the Venusian magneto tail, which comes from the induced magnetic field that uh, the Venus gets from the interaction of its atmosphere with the uh, solar wind. And instead, it's a hybrid between the two. So I had no idea about this sort of hybrid nature. And actually, I guess other people hadn't really known about it <laughs> or knew that that was, in fact, the case until uh, fairly recent MAVEN results. So anyway, to really kind of pin down that, um, to understand the structure, the 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 topology of the field. Uh, that's going to be one of the key things. Also to understand how, you know, these particles from the solar wind, how they move through the magnetic field. And then really crucial to um, kind of the top level thing of understanding how, you know, Mars's climate had changed, right? That's kind of a big picture thing over time is to understand the escape of ions and particles from uh, 
Mars is atmosphere, right? In particular, water, among other, you know, uh, things that are uh, important to the habitability, the past habitability of Mars. And so uh, that that atmospheric escape has been measured to some degree by MAVEN and Mars Express. Uh, but right now, that's um, not known. I think it's actually just a limit that they've only been able to put on there. Anything that, that gets measured, technically, we only have limits because, you know, <laughs> precision is never perfect. Ah. <laughs> but... Uh... I'm just being snarky. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, that's fair. An unbounded limit. So, like, uh, I think it's a lower limit. Like, at least this many are escaping, but we don't know oh, quite bad. how many. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's you, bad. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that is fair. Yeah, you, and that's something that I always, you know, yeah. You always got to have error bars on your measurements if, if, if you want them to be taken seriously, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, that the, the ability, though, uh, uh, what really makes Escapade get around um, some of the limitations of MAVEN and Mars Express is that when you have twin spacecraft, you're able to basically make multiple measurements simultaneously, uh, both, you know, at different locations in the orbit, as well as different times, but similar, you know, positions uh, around Mars. And so uh, that's really going to help them out a lot there. They're going to be able to measure the effect of the solar wind on uh, how that affects the, uh, the, the escape on uh, short time scales, what happens during solar storms. In order to do this, you want to make sure that you're able to dive deep into the magnetosphere as well as fly far out. And so this is a highly eccentric uh, 200 by 7,000 kilometer orbit, uh, at least initially, and then it changes over time. And so um, I worry that sometimes I get too deep in the weeds with the instruments when I like to yap about them. But this one, this this will be quick. Uh, there's really only three instruments on there, and they're all they're all optimized towards um, you know uh, those kind of principal you know uh, uh, science goals. You know the magnetic field as well as the uh, uh, the the ionic flux leaving or the ion flux leaving the surface or leaving the atmosphere, and so there's EMAG the uh, Escapade magnetometer, and so this is you know a magnetometer. It's going to be on a boom, you know, leaving the photon spacecraft. So that's going to be really cool to see. You know, I mean, I always love uh, the way you know spacecraft that have magnetometers look, right? And uh, as as is usual, you have you know the magnetometer located both halfway up the boom as well as at the end, so you can do differential measurements to kind of subtract out what magnetic fields coming from the spacecraft itself. And uh, you know, as a result, you end up with something with uh, half a nanotesla accuracy. And to give you an idea of what uh, you know a nanotesla is, the Earth's magnetic field strength is about fifty thousand nanotesla or 50 micro tesla and so you know half a nano tesla accuracy compared to you know what your little compass magnet is able to pick up which is you know 50,000 times uh, a nano tesla and so that's a hundred thousand times difference there and so very good very sensitive um and then one of the other uh two instruments uh, the other two are both related to the um uh, measuring ions and uh uh actual particles and uh photons uh, uh, uh around the um are leaving and coming back to the atmosphere because there's also a return flux of these, you know, particles, these ions escaping. They kind of, they kind of sometimes don't quite reach escape velocity and then come flying back down to the uh, uh, Martian uh, into the atmosphere. And so there's the EESA, which is the uh, Escapade Electrostatic Analyzer. And so this is basically going to measure uh, both ions and electrons. It's got kind of two uh, separate channels with, you know, two separate uh, principal investigators, PIs behind them. And then the third instrument is the ELP, which is the uh, Escapade Langmuir probe. And so this is a, a Langmuir probe is, I'm not too familiar with it, but essentially it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a type of way to measure uh, the thermal plasma density in solar uh, electron 
reflux. Um, and so this is uh, also going to be useful for, again, measuring in particular how, you know, uh, solar storms affect, uh, you know, the escape rate and things like that. And so through modeling, they can basically uh, tease out uh, a lot of things about how, you know, uh, basically uh, what's been happening to the uh, loss rates on Mars. And if, and if you make these measurements good now, you can feed them into models and then try to figure out what the loss rates were at earlier times, which could be very interesting with all that stuff we know about the past on the ground through the geological record on Mars. And then you tie that to the atmospheric record on Mars through these models, and then you can really then come up with some good climatic uh, kind of ideas for what was happening. Because Mars is still kind of, there's a lot of big questions about Mars, and especially in the past, uh, what its climate was like. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, it's really cool stuff. Um, and then finally, just the mission profile for Escapade. It's, it's going to be a one-year mission, uh, nominally, uh, with uh, roughly six months. I didn't measure it quite, but it seems like it's basically split into two phases. And the first phase, uh, the two will be flying uh, much closer in their orbit. Um, and this is, again, that 200 by 7,000 kilometer orbit. And that idea, uh, by having them close to each other but still uh, trailing, means that you can uh, characterize the boundary conditions as you pass in to the magneto tail and out of it essentially or like through the bow shock uh, just having the two of them uh, together uh, helps with that as well as temporal variation right if the first if the leading spacecraft measures something and then like you know minutes later the second one measures something different at that same position in the magnetosphere then you have you know a short uh, time scale um, temporal variation that you're able to pick up on and so after, uh, you know, about six months of that, then they switch to phase two, where you then change the orbit. So you bring uh, in the uh, Apoarian, uh, the furthest point for one of them, and pull out the uh, Apoarian for the other. And as a result, then there's that lag. And then as they're uh, away from each other, you can now look for spatial variability within each region uh, as they pass through them at different times, right? Because remember, there's not just different times of day for Mars, but there's also, in particular for the tail, as Mars goes around uh, the sun, the tail is always pointing away from the sun, and so that's going to be in a little different direction relative to the surface of Mars all the time, and thus its atmosphere. And then, uh, and at the same time, you can look for correlations. If one spacecraft sees something happening at the same time that the other spacecraft uh, on the other side of the planet sees something, uh, these long-term correlations happen a lot in like atmospheric science, and so you can imagine them happening here as well. It's a pretty awesome mission, and just once again, Rocket Lab, I love Rocket Lab. <laughs> they are just doing such cool things. I can't wait till we learn some, you know, uh, details, you know, or more like as they come up with the details for uh, how they want to do their Venusian mission. But the fact that they're, uh, that this escapade is kind of a well-developed uh, mission here and that we're going to be seeing it, it'd be helpful to have mentioned the launch date. Jeez Louise. You know, we, we can look forward to escapade flying, hopefully in the near term. Um, Space.com's reporting 2024 uh, as part of a, a rideshare payload on a you know a commercial rocket procured by NASA and so uh, while it's not exactly clear exactly um, what that rocket would be or how much the mission will cost that's the plan right now and so a few years down the road uh, hopefully we'll be seeing a uh, you know a couple of photons traveling to uh, Mars. And so Rocket Lab has both Venus and Mars with their photons uh, in the docket. Mm -hmm. And then much nearer term, they've got their lunar mission, right? They're going to be launching Capstone, right, to the moon, which is the uh, exploratory mission for uh, one of these uh, uh, lunar payloads. But yeah, so they got their Capstone uh, that's going to be hopefully launching uh, uh, soon, <laughs> you know, <laughs> later this year, <laughs> just a yeah. couple months. I mean, the, it's so cool to me, like, you know, each, each commercial uh, launch provider has their own flavor and it's so cool to see rocket labs flavor be science 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 mm -hmm. um mm. and like nobody's i don't think anybody's like gotten 
uh, this serious about sending a single commercial vehicle to multiple planets. Like, you know, you, you could argue that uh, Red Dragon, you know, would have been a dragon on Mars, a dragon maybe on the moon. And then, you know, SpaceX has talked about, oh, well, we we could also send uh, Dragon version 2, uh, you know, out to the Jupiter system or something like that. But like, this is so much more like this is, you know, funded <laughs> like th- this is yeah. like uh may- maybe not locked in that might be a bit um a bit optimistic but like it- it's more or less locked in that they're, that they're going to go do these things um and i think it would be even cooler if uh escapade wound up flying on a neutron just you know that nasa hasn't picked a-, a launcher yet or they haven't admitted to picking a launcher maybe they're not committing to that because they're thinking about flying on neutron which would be you know more more risky in in terms of the timeline at very least because i don't think electron could throw two photons to mars i don't i don't know if that's reasonable um it, it depends i guess it depends on how much of the work the photons are going to be doing but this is really cool <laughs> this makes mm-hmm. me really excited no and that's a great point that even though it would be a tighter timeline that that neutron is still in the mix and so yeah that might be exactly right for that type of language although i mean it, it would also kind of be cool to see um two photons fly on a falcon 9 that would just be a, a mishmash of of cooperative goodness okay let's do short and sweet this week we got four of them so a little bit more than usual and dennis is going to start us off first up chinese crew reaches Tianhe space station module after a successful launch on a Long March 2F at the Jiuquan Satellite Launch Center, China's Shenzhou-12 spacecraft reached the Tianhe Space Station core module. China's officials confirmed that the crew of three docked with the forming station six hours, 32 minutes after launch. And Taikonauts Nianhai Shang, Liu Boming, and Tong Hongbo will now spend three months aboard. The third of 11 launches planned for the full construction of the station, the Shenzhou-12 mission will include EVAs, the testing of a large robotic arm, and verification of a regenerative life support system. Uh, Next, a faulty memory system halts Hubble operations. Last week, NASA stated that a payload computer on board Hubble stopped working, putting the instruments into safe mode. Engineers speculated that the computer malfunctioned because of a degrading memory module. Efforts to switch to a backup module failed, as well as an attempt to restore the computer with both the original and backup module together. While Hubble has experienced both software and hardware issues before, Nancy Levinson of Space Telescope Science Institute emphasized that the Space Observatory is doing well in general and appeared optimistic of continuing operations at least through the end of 2030. And then next up, NEO Surveyor moves forward. NASA's Near-Earth Object Surveyor mission has passed Key Decision Point B, moving it to Phase B of its development and a preliminary design review in 2023. Proponents of the mission are optimistic as NASA has requested 143 $3.2 million for the mission in its 22 fiscal year budget proposal. The NEO surveyor will have a 0.5 meter telescope equipped with infrared detectors that will allow it to hunt day and night for near-Earth asteroids, a task that is currently carried out only at night using ground-based telescopes. NEO surveyor is an updated version of a previous mission called NEOCAM that competed for selection as one of NASA's discovery missions in 2017. And fourthly, Launcher announces development of orbital transfer vehicle. The small launch vehicle company announced that it is working on an orbital transfer vehicle capable of flying on both its own launcher as well as SpaceX's Falcon 9. The vehicle, named Orbiter, will carry up to 150 kilograms of payload, either as 90 units worth of CubeSat deployers or a set of larger satellites with standard separation systems. 
Equipped with ethylene and nitrous oxide propellants, the vehicle will have a baseline delta V capability of 500 meters per second, though that can be increased with additional tanks. Orbiter's first mission is slated for October 2022 when it plans to fly on a Falcon 9 rideshare mission. All right, let's do this week in spaceflight history. So we have a handful of winners. We have a correct answer given by Ben Hallert, and then we also have some more correct answers with bonus points given to Peter McMally, Hot Stuff McTottlepots, the Greek, and William Andrews. I love Hot Stuff McTottlepots. Like, that That name is so good. <laughs> Yeah, like I don't know what reference it's act like what schema it's activated in my head, but like it, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> it works. <laughs> okay, okay. So sorry, real, real. We there's so much good news, and like there, there's gonna be some stuff that I'm gonna put in the show notes because there's some good things with photos, and like be. I'm just gonna like, uh, in spirit, kind of append this onto short and sweet. I just got, I gotta point out a few things before I get to this week in spaceflight history. Um, so first, uh, and terrifying, um, uh, Delta V in the discord chat, um, posted a series of tweets that I hadn't seen. Um, apparently, um, a, uh, a giant object, uh, is going to be passing, uh, within 11 AU of the sun over the next 10 years. Um, it's huge. Um, it's tough to estimate how big it is, but we're talking, um, brown dwarf slash, uh, dwarf planet sized so that that's 130 to 170 kilometers ish based on the absolute magnitude um no uh no idea how big it actually is yeah within 11 au it is insane Mm. so so there's there's that i'll put a bunch of links in the show notes um thank you delta b for pointing that out and then the other thing is rosa uh, has been deployed and there are lots of good gifs. Uh, so we will have, uh, uh, gifs of Rosa deploying in the show notes as well. So just, just kind of a heads up because it's awesome. Okay. With that said, uh, this week in spaceflight history is the 25th of June, 1992. It was the launch of STS 50, the first extended duration orbiter mission. So the clue from last week was it's good to be home. Glad I packed an extra lunch. So the extra lunch, um, specifically refers to the extended duration orbiter part of the mission. Um, not the one day delay in the landing. So that's why I didn't give Ben bonus points. And, uh, sorry, Ben, I, I think I just have to take opportunities to, to limit your happiness whenever I can, because like you are always so good at guessing these things and you always get the bonus points. So may, maybe you, uh, maybe you have a slightly higher, uh, bar to cross here. <laughs> Sorry. So STS 50, um, was flown by Columbia and the, the name of the mission was micro us microgravity laboratory one. And, and we did a number of, uh, USMLs, uh, missions. Uh, but this was the first one. Uh, it was a pressurized space lab mission. I added pressurized cause some of the space lab missions were unpressurized. I realized, um, and I'm not going to talk too much about the scientists, this uh, about the science because it's, the standard space lab science, right? Just crystal growth experiments all over the place. Um, fluid dynamic experiments all over the place. It just, you know, it's kind of what you, what you expect, (laughs) but notably one of the science things that I will point out is that, um, this was the first use of the glove box facility, uh, on space lab, um, which 
you know, then became after this, it kind of became the uh, one of the staples uh, of shuttle science because it's just so, uh, so useful. OK, so extended duration orbiter. Um, first, I want to talk about why this was a thing to begin with. Um, the shuttle was originally designed uh, for a seven day uh, maximum mission duration. And like that, that sounds like a lot of time, um, but it is compared to like a suborbital trajectory. But, you know, when you, when you start including um, all the activities that you have to do to get into orbit, to activate the science, to deactivate the science, to deorbit, like the whole thing, um, you really only get five days worth of science uh, out of a shuttle mission. It's not a lot, right? <laughs> There's not a lot of, uh, long, you know, longer, I guess, medium duration science. I mean, it's, it's just, a, it's a limiting factor, right? There's a lot we can do with, with five days, but it's, it's a limiting factor. Um, and, and granted we had pushed that seven day limit previously. Um, STS nine, which was also Columbia was the first space lab mission. And, and they took extra hydrogen and liquid oxygen, uh, for the fuel cells. So that they had enough power to last for nine days, but there are other consumables you have to consider like, you know, being able to breathe. Um, and so it's, it's not something that you can just, uh, do all the time. Like it, it actually took some modifications to, to be able to do that. So NASA goes, okay, well, we do want to be able to spend more time on orbit. Um, so, so let's, uh, start doing EDO, the, the, the design for, uh, the extended duration orbiter. Um, and so they set the goal of being able to do a 16 day mission without pushing it. Right. So that's a 16 day mission plus all of the extensions that you'd need to be able to do if your, uh, primary landing target is, uh, recovering from, uh, the edges of a hurricane say, <laughs> um, you know, you might need to extend the mission out a day. Um, so, so, you know, we're talking a 16 day primary mission plus all the extra overages that you need to account for. Um, so uh, they wanted to, uh, build EDO to do 16 days, but they also wanted to design EDO in a way that you could upgrade to 28 days without um, having to redesign the components that you had built for the, uh, the original EDO specification. So what exactly do you have to do to be able to, uh, linger on orbit that long? Well, the first thing is breathe. So there were two upgrades that allowed them, uh, to, to breathe for that long. Uh, the first one was, uh, RCRS, the regenerative CO2 removal system. Uh, previous shuttle missions had only used lithium hydroxide canisters. And th there's this really interesting intersection that happens um, where lithium hydroxide canisters uh, are big, but um, a regenerative CO2 system is bigger. Um, but because a regenerative system um, doesn't have any consumables, it stays statically big when compared to mission duration, whereas lithium hydroxide canisters scale linearly with the length of your mission. So that, that crossover point, depending on how big your crew is, is only a few days, right? Like you wind up uh, dedicating so much volume to lithium hydroxide canisters, um, that a regenerative system, um, becomes, um, worth it in terms of volume, uh, just a few days in. So, uh, the RCRS, um, system actually saved them a lot of stowage volume, 
Um, but to actually fit it in, they, they decided to put in the lower equipment bay. So that's um, the bay below the mid-deck floor. To be able to fit it in, they actually had to move the modular auxiliary auxiliary data system aft to kind of shove it in the space that they wanted to shove it in. Um, so that, you know, kind of jostles for space, but it, it fits in there. The second uh, let's actually be able to breathe uh, modification was additional nitrogen. So shuttle leaks just like every other uh, space vehicle. Um, and it was really interesting. Uh, Dennis had found this fantastic um, document that was published by uh, SAE. Uh, it'll be linked in the show notes. And it actually quantified um, the majority of the of the nitrogen or of the atmosphere leak sources. So so the the, the big one is uh, six pounds per day due to structural seepage um, and mm-hmm. intentional vents. They lumped those two together, which seems a little unfair. Um, Shuttle intentionally vented uh, atmosphere because of stinkiness. Uh, the technical term mm. was wet trash odor. Um, oh, basically, wow. <laughs> yeah, basically you get, uh, you know, seven people in a tiny two room apartment uh, for, uh, a, you know, seven days in a row and uh, wet trash odor becomes an issue. Um, so that's six pounds a day. Um, the RCRS, the, the carbon dioxide system, uh, the carbon dioxide extractor um, had sort of a, a two pounds of air per day allowance that it could, that it could pull out. <laughs> Anderson in the chat says 20 years submarine smell. Yeah, I'm uh. good. Don't want it. I, don't think Dustin Sandlin mentioned the smell when he was on board a, a U.S. nuclear submarine, uh, but I, I'm sure it was uh, omnipresent. So, yeah, the RCRS was going to uh, end up losing two pounds of air a day. Uh, the toilet, surprisingly, takes up two cubic feet of air per flush. And so when you think about um, shuttle being pressurized um, at atmospheric pressure, it's it's what, um, like 14 something PSI. Um, that's pounds per square inch. And there's two cubic 12 square inches. What is that? 122 times times two, I guess, uh, per flush like that. That's depending on how many times you're flushing this toilet. Like that's a lot of that's a lot of air loss. And then you have additional air losses um, when you do pressure changes. So like if you're doing an EVA, um, they lower the cabin pressure from, at, you know, uh, sea level down to to something slightly below sea level. Um, and then, you know, you're venting. I don't remember if they evacuate the air uh, in the in the airlock uh, by venting it overboard or if they actually pressurize it and keep it. But either way, you're, you're losing air every time you open that door. Um, you lose air when you're changing the air pressure um, f- uh, for pre-breathing for an EVA and when you're changing from uh, the launch atmosphere to the um, on orbit atmosphere, like it, it's, you just, you lose a bunch of air doing that intentionally, right? That's designed in. So with, with all of that taken into consideration for a seven day mission, you needed four, uh, four nitrogen tanks. Um, and, and these tanks specifically do 3,300 PSIA. So in order to get up to the, um, the, the 14 day EDO requirement or that, sorry, the 16 day EDO, uh, requirement they needed to go from four tanks up to six tanks 
uh, of nitrogen. And so, okay, great. You add on some tanks, but where the heck do you put all of these things? So um, the, the standard orbiter has two different um, nitrogen systems. Um, system one and system two, real easy to remember. Um, the uh, system one tanks um, were originally in uh, bay two on the port side. So if you think about the the cargo bay being split up into ten, well nine different sections going from fore to aft, that you ha you start at bay two and you go all the way up to bay ten. Um, so, um, system one was in, uh, bay two on the port side. They moved it all the way aft to bay 10 on the port side, or bay, all the way back to bay 10 and split up the two tanks. So there's one port and one starboard. Um, and that, that movement there was done for, uh, center mass optimization. And then, uh, they put the new tanks where system one used to be. So bay two port, but they would, either have them there or take them out whether or not they were doing an EDO mission. And then uh, just for reference, the system two tanks um, were in bays two and four on the starboard side. It was one each. They, they split those up as well. Okay. So that, that's the, the extra nitrogen. We got that covered. Good. We can breathe now. Um, what else? <laughs> I have written down here, better toilet, open parentheses, too mm. much poop close parentheses. Um, so, so they upgraded the toilet, which obviously is in the mid deck. Um, and what's cool about the, the upgraded toilet is that the specification for, you know, the EDO specification said you can't change the footprint. You can't change the volume and you can't change the mounting points. You have to build a better toilet in the same space with the same hookups, with the same mounting positions. And, and they did, I, I, I'm not familiar enough with space toilets to uh, to know exactly what they did, but basically they were able to store uh, more waste um, in a smaller area. the The shuttle toilet we've um, talked about it before because the first one was really bad, um, but I, I didn't know that the 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 solid waste storage tank actually has a, a one-time use compaction net, which is just an amazing sequence of words um, that would let you uh, store more solid waste in there by like squishing it. Uh, I mean, one-time use solid compression net like that, that or compaction net that really says a lot. And then there's a quote um, in, in this SAE article or SAE document that I, I just have to quote because it, it's amazing and horrible at the same time. So solids collection and odor control are provided by a commode canister, a commode fan, a compactor motor, and charcoal filters. A diverter valve is first positioned to the desired commode fan. The seat is raised and defecation ensues. Ha! Ah, okay. <laughs> Enough said about like that, right? We can move on. Okay. So what else do you need? Um, you are going to have people on board for longer. They're going to need to eat. They're going to need to change their clothes, yada, yada. So they need to add additional storage. Um, and, and they crammed in storage all over the place. This is really cool. Um, in the forward end of the mid deck, they added 25.4 cubic feet worth of storage. Um, that those are hard containers, like a hard rack, uh, that, uh, weighs a hundred pounds dry before you put anything else in it. Um, they added a soft container to the airlock floor. Um, and so, you know, EDO 
I don't know if they ever flew an EDL mission without Space Lab on board, um, but you know you need to go through the airlock to get to Space Lab. But the soft container is like kind of out of the way, but it's not out of the way enough to be able to do an EVA as well. Um, so if you're going to do an EVA, you have to take that soft stowage container out of the airlock. No big deal. Um, since they uh, don't have to bring along as many lithium hydroxide canisters, they still brought some in case of emergency, but since you don't have to bring as many, they were actually able to convert the uh, LAOH stowage into additional crew stowage, which is pretty, uh, may maybe obvious, but also pretty cool. Like we don't need these anymore. Let's put uh, snacks in there instead. Um, and then they added a trash compactor, which is pretty darn cool. Um, the, the trash compactor was actually flown before STS 50, which is a mission that we're talking about now is actually tested, uh, on STS 35. Seems like a good idea. Okay. So that's, that's all the extra snacks you're going to need. Hey, I, I was able to do a quick look. If you want to know, uh, there was almost all of the EDO missions were space lab ones, but there were a couple okay. exceptions and they're all like wild ones. Oh, like really? uh, one was the Astro two basically telescope that they had back there. One was that wake shield facility that they had dragon behind oh. that I mentioned <laughs> earlier, I think <laughs> this year, um, the, the infamous tethered satellite system. Uh, this was the reflight. Although actually, no, sorry, that one still had a, a space lab on board, but um, okay. the wake shield facility didn't. And then, the third one that did not was, um, no, yeah, just those two, it looks like. It's kind of cool that they never did a Hubble servicing mission as an EDO. They didn't have to. They were fast enough. That's true, right? The higher orbit. Okay, so now you got all the snacks you need. You know where you're going to put them. You know where you're actually <laughs> putting the nitrogen. Uh, the the last thing that, uh, that had to get upgraded was the power. So... Um, I think most people listening will know that shuttle um, uses fuel cells for its power generation. Um, you take uh, hydrogen and oxygen and burn them up together. You get water and uh, fire, which we then uh, magically turn into electricity. Okay, so one of the uh, major power demands on shuttle is ECLS, the, the life support system. And... Uh, quick aside, I found a, an interesting fact in that SAE document um, that <laughs> says that the 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 ECLS power de demands are are generally one pound of of propellant, right? Uh, nitrogen or hydrogen and oxygen. The the power demands are, are roughly one pound per hour per crew member, except during ascent when it increases to three to 4.5 pounds per hour per crew member. So ascent is terrifying. I mean, like, obviously there are a <laughs> lot of additional, it's not just fear. It's, you know, it's like all the, uh, -huh. uh the, the physical demands of, of surviving that, but like that, that's incredible. One pound up to three or four and a half. Uh, just see, I thought that would have been well on these missions. Perhaps it's not necessary, but if they have to do any kind of you know like physical activity in order to keep mm -hmm. up their bone strength and all of that, um, then obviously those demands are going to go way up. Um, yeah. and actually will last you know several hours because I think that at least on station it's what two hours of cardio every day, yeah. something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and and like uh, preparing for an EVA also bumps up the ECLS mm -hmm. power consumption, um, specifically during like the re uh, the pre breathing period but but anyway um to to meet the previous um power demands they needed somewhere between three to five pairs of tanks so they they actually call them tank sets um, but I, I think pairs is a, a 
friendlier way to to convey this idea. So, you know, one tank for oxygen, one tank for hydrogen. So normal shuttle, the seven day shuttle needs three to five tank worths of propellant. EDO is going to take them from uh, three to five uh, pairs up to nine pairs. Um, and so now we have to figure out where to put these darn things. Um, so five of them, they put in uh, in the payload bay liner or under the payload bay liner. So under the floor of the payload bay, right? Um, and then four got put uh, aft of the payload bay in what I'm assuming is bay 11. I think you got it uh, in, in that figure five in the document. It looks like uh, 10. So you're off by one. <laughs> you're close. <laughs> oh, it it is in 10. It is in 10. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what what's interesting is that um some of the diagrams I looked at made it look as if they were inside uh the aft fuselage and in, in, inside the engine compartment. And that that's not correct. Um they put them on a pallet and stuck the pallet at the very back of, of the cargo bay. And What's cool is that they have the the emergency winch at the very back of the cargo bay, right? So if if the um, the motors fail to close the doors, um, you can go EVA and and crank it um, down by hand. And so they actually had to move the winch assembly forward uh, to to make room for this pallet, the the EDL pallet. What's what's interesting is that the SAE document says that the that this pallet wasn't intended to ever be removed, but instead they were just going to partially fill it, you know, to, to match whatever mission duration they were going to do if, if EDO wasn't required. But actually, once Endeavor was uh, able to use the EDO kit, um, they actually just pulled it out of Columbia and put it into Endeavor. So, you know, they, they did end up removing it. And I, I would love to know what kind of like afterthought decision that wound up being like, you know, actually, we would really value some extra cargo space and also you know not having all this weight would be good uh it's kind of kind of interesting and so remember this is to get them up to 16 days but they wanted to have the capability of going up to 28 days if they if they decided to do so and so um, the original intention was to just slap four additional pairs of tanks uh, on the forward face of the pallet but what's really interesting is when uh, they considered actually um, doing a 28-day mission. Uh, the solution that they arrived at was to throw in a second pallet um, instead of putting more more tanks on on the same pallet. Okay, so I have a section here labeled which orbiter, and I think this is going to be pretty uh, pretty obvious from the way that I've uh, talked about uh, EDO so far. Um, but Columbia uh, was selected um, to do the first EDO upgrade. And the reason for that is the the extra cryogenic tanks, um, which were installed uh, for STS-9, the, the first space lab mission where they flew for nine days. Um, so they, they already had those guys. So like, ah, this one's easiest. Let's put it in there. And then Endeavor was still under construction at this point. So they... Um, they decided to scar it for EDO upgrades. And I don't know what scarred means in particular, but my guess is that um, they probably um, cut some bolt holes. Um, you know, they probably did like all the layout stuff. You know, there's like chalk lines showing yeah. where these <laughs> upgrades are going to go. Um, but they, they kind of prepped it 
for upgrade. And then eventually they did complete those upgrades, but Endeavor uh, only flew once in EDO mode, and that was on STS-67. The second cryopallet would have gone in Endeavor if they ever decided to do so. Atlantis also got scarred, but it was never upgraded to be able to do the EDO kit. So, so in total, EDO, or they flew 13 EDO missions on Columbia and one on Endeavor. Um, and Columbia's last mission actually had the, uh, the cryo pallet on board. What's interesting is that they, they didn't ever, uh, even consider building a new cryo pallet because at that point ISS was already in construction and ISS was already showing all this promise. So if you want to do long duration missions, just fly it to ISS. And shuttle did have longer missions than, than the 16 day limit, but they, uh, they didn't need uh, the EDO kit to be able to do it because if they went to ISS, they could, uh, plug shuttle into ISS eventually. They, they, uh, um, built the uh, the power transfer cable something something uh, so that they could uh, um, keep shuttle on orbit attached to ISS for longer. So the the clue referenced uh, coming home and lunch. So the the extra lunch is all of the EDO upgrades. Oh God, I love uh, AXM uh, paper models. It's so beautiful. <laughs> Uh, so for context for our listeners, uh, Dennis just posted the AXM paper space scale models.com, uh, paper craft model of SDS 50. And I am not a paper craft kind of person. Uh, I'm just not precise enough. Uh, but I would love to build one of those models there. You can download them for free. I mean, it's just, it's such a cool resource. I really love it. Okay. So the clue for this week mentioned lunch and coming home. So that's the lunch, the extended mission uh, capabilities. You got extra consumables, including literally more food. So um, the coming home uh, refers to the uh, fact that this was the first time that Columbia had landed at Kennedy. Columbia had only ever landed at Edwards and White Sands that one time. Other shuttles had landed at Kennedy, but this was Columbia's first time. And so they're they're coming home and Hurricane Darby, uh, kind of the, the remnants of Hurricane Darby, uh, are sweeping past Southern California. This happened in 1992. So like I was forming memories at the time and I don't remember a storm. Like I, I don't, I don't, I'm assuming it wasn't, you know, that bad of weather, but just bad enough to not want to lay in the shuttle there. But it would be cool if like I remembered it and, and like thought about it long enough and went, oh, wait, you know what? That would have been in the middle of summer. Oh, yeah, I bet you that was <laughs> that was keeping uh, STS-50 from coming. Anyway, so um, they have to delay a day and then they get to land at Kennedy. OK, so like other than, you know, this first uh, landing at this, the landing at Kennedy wasn't uh, notable, really. Um, but. While I was looking for something notable uh, to talk about, uh, I ran across this um, fun little factoid. Well, okay, so the fun factoid that I that I knew but thought I needed to include is that um, the shuttle landing facility <laughs> was also called the Gator Tanning Facility because the alligators really love to lay out on the uh, <laughs> on the runway and sun themselves, and um, that's very Florida. Uh, a lot of people will be familiar with what the shuttle landing facility looks like. It's a runway surrounded by water. There, there's like this moat that runs almost unbroken around the entire uh, uh, landing strip. I always thought 
that it was there for fire suppression, right? You have a shuttle land and the, you know, the shuttle's got explodey liquids on it. Um, let's not burn down the whole wetlands. And, you know, you would think that just the name wetlands would clue me into the fact that they're not highly flammable. I wouldn't think. <laughs> um, but but did you know that the the moat was primarily for runoff retention? Like it it was mandated by the EPA. They said if you're going to put this much concrete in one or this much asphalt in one place, concrete. If you're going to put this much concrete in one place, um, you need to be able to um, store the runoff and release it slowly so that you don't overwhelm the surrounding environment. That's pretty oh, cool. Um, that is interesting. Water. Yeah. Water runoff is something that I, I've always been kind of interested in just in that it's something that, you know, rain happens and humans have to deal with it, but we don't, most people don't think about dealing with it. And like here in Pennsylvania, I've been thinking about it a lot because I live on a hill and all of the water from my neighbor's property drains into my yard and is actually um, like destroying my basement um, just by erosion. And I'm going to have to um, pay to get my uh, my basement fixed. We have a, a stone basement. It's a stone wall um, in a rectangle that the house is then built on top of. And like there are jacks in the basement holding some of our floor joists up. Um, because the stone basement is, um, in some places settling in some places actually falling apart. Um, and we're going to have to fix that because of water runoff. Um, and I believe that even though we own this plot of land, we're not allowed to reject the water that's coming in from our neighbor. We have to accept it and direct it, um, to the storm drain system, um, which for us is just the South end of our property. But, you know, like we can't put up a wall that blocks the water coming in. I believe I, I could totally be wrong. Yeah. So, so water movement is, has been really interesting to me lately. So I really like the fact that the shuttle landing facility, um, has those lakes primarily for runoff retention. They also, uh, I think the EPA asked them to do this, um, to build it as a wildlife barrier, but that might've also just been like the, the federal land reserve or preserve something or other regulations. I don't know. But then uh, NASA liked it because it was a good visual aid uh, for shuttle pilots as they came in. It's also probably nice that, you know, it won't let you burn down the wetlands. But uh, but yeah, Nat, uh, the EPA liked it for the runoff retention. NASA really liked it for the visual aid. I think that's kind of cool. All right. So that is your This Week in Spaceflight History. Cool. That was a cool shuttle mission, two in a row. That was great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty cool, huh? Like, I, I like the the co continuity. There you go. Yeah, continuity, <laughs> exactly. So next week, uh, Dennis, you have this one, and the date range is the 29th of June through the 5th of July, and do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Next week in 1998, not all hope is lost. It'll return twice. Okay, good clue. I don't know. We'll find out whether it's good or not. <laughs> not all hope is lost. It'll return twice. And that's in 1998. Okay. Well, if anyone out there thinks that they know what this is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Let's do upcoming spaceflight events then. Four of those. Three launches. So we have some good launches. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, we're not sure about Firefly Alpha, <laughs> but I just wanted to say it anyway because that's going to be cool when that launches. Yeah. yeah, just keep an eye out for that whenever it might be because it's coming up. <laughs> Eventually coming up. All right. All right. First off, we have a Soyuz 21B flying 
Pion NKS number one. I think it's Pion, maybe Pion. So these are um, military satellites. They're the naval component of the ELINT, the, like the next generation ELINT um, system called Liana. So they have uh, ELINT sensors as well as uh, radar sensors. Big old military spy satellites um, for mm -hmm. looking at boats very closely. And that is going to launch on Friday, June 25th at an unknown time. It's a military payload. They're not, <laughs> they're not telling anyone, <laughs> uh, apparently. Um, and that's uh, flying out of Plesetsk. So on that same day and at a time that we do know, we have a Falcon 9, <laughs> which is launching Transporter 2. So this is one you can actually watch. And uh, yeah, so this is um, a SpaceX Falcon 9 launching a ride share into sun-synchronous orbit with several small microsatellites and nanosatellites. And so this is for commercial and government customers. I don't know what those are exactly, but... Well, if I remember correctly, Transporter 1 was that when they broke that record having, I don't know, 60 right. payloads yeah, correct. together. So I, I have not looked this up, but I'm going to say this, and you are welcome to at me if I'm wrong, because I am very confident I'm not wrong. There's going to be mm -hmm. at least one Dove satellite. Like, if I get it wrong, everybody can at me. That's fine. I'll, I'll take all the emails, because I'm not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked it up. I'm not wrong. I bet you got it. <laughs> so uh, that's launching with a launch window um, of 1856 through 1954 UTC, which is 256 through 354 on the East Coast. And that's launching from Slick 40 at Cape Canaveral. So definitely check that one out. It's at a good time of day to watch it. And then on June 27th, Sunday, we have our uh, non-launch uh, news item. For the, or uh, upcoming event for the week. And um, this would be uh, coverage of the release of uh, Northrop Grumman's SS Catherine Johnson Cygnus cargo craft from the uh, International Space Station. And so uh, that'll be on NASA TV uh, with um, the coverage starting at 12 p.m. Eastern time and the release scheduled at 12.25. So keep an eye out for that. Um, and by the way, speaking of Johnson, the, the book that we talked about, the Kickstarter, um, with all of her papers, was successfully funded. So, Oh, yes. To, Good update. Yeah, thank you to any of our yeah. uh, listeners who supported that. And then finally, we have a progress flying. So this is progress uh, MS-17. Uh, the NASA designation is uh, 78P. So that is flying on uh, Tuesday, June 29th at 2327 hours UTC. Uh, out of Baikonur, as if I need to say that. Uh, <laughs> and with that, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And uh, with that, let's do with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're a orbital podcast on both. You can talk directly to us by emailing info at All right, that is it. And we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Bye, everybody. See you.